Um, we're going to be in Acts 21. You can grab a sermon handout as usual on the resource table if you'd like and a clipboard. There's also some Bibles over there. Uh, otherwise, grab a Bible or a Bible app and flip over to Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And I'll just I'll start out as you're as you're going there, the first part of Acts 21, by just saying that to follow Christ is to face suffering. Um, I don't know how to put that any more simply, uh, but to follow Christ is to face suffering in this life on this earth. Uh, Jesus himself taught this to his disciples, and we see it in a couple of the Gospels, but in in Luke in particular, because we're in Luke's sequel to his Gospel, uh, so we're in the book of Acts. Let's go back to Luke's Gospel, and these are the words he recorded Jesus speaking to his disciples. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If anyone wants to come after me, that is to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then he goes on to say, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. So Paul knew this. The Apostle Paul, was uh, he understood this concept of discipleship. Under Christ, And Paul was prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. And we see that time and time again in his life and in his missionary journeys, in the book of Acts in particular. <clears throat> and from the very beginning, if you all remember way back when, I don't remember when this was that we talked about it, uh, but in Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> Jesus had predicted that Paul was going to suffer in bringing glory to himself, in bringing glory to Christ. And this was all the way back in Acts chapter 9 when, when he saved Paul on the road to Damascus. And then he, uh, Ananias was like, really? Saul, the persecutor, this is the guy? And Jesus, remember, uh, appeared to Ananias, who was to lay hands on him and pray over him to cure his blindness, Saul's blindness. And this is what Jesus told Ananias. He said, speaking about Paul, he said, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. So that was predicted from the very beginning. So Paul understood this. And I think today, uh, and I think we're enculturated into this, but, but we really, even in the church, are raised with a secular understanding of, of this life. And a secular understanding of this life would say, this is it. And all the beer commercials and all the everything else we look at, all, well, really all the commercials, would say, this is it. You've got you to gotta get yours now. You've got to live your best life now in a worldly sense because this is it. Once you're gone, you're gone. And so have as much happiness, adventure, whatever it is that you're going to need, relationships, whatever. And that's a secular mindset, and it convinces us that we are supposed to escape suffering at all costs. In fact, that's almost like our job in life from a secular perspective, is to at all costs escape suffering and difficulty. And we wrongly assume that this life on earth is all about the minimization of suffering, and it's not. But sometimes we must embrace suffering just as Jesus did. And that's why I include that passage where he talks about following him, taking up your cross daily and following him. So today's big idea is that the road through suffering, and I said that specifically because we all take a road to suffering, but when we get to the suffering, that's the question. What do we do then? 
when we get to the suffering. And so I, I say that the big idea today is the road through suffering requires a Christ-like mindset. And that is a mindset that is spiritual, informed by the Spirit. We're going to look at that. That is sacrificial and that is submissive to the Lord. And those are the three things we're going to see in today's passage. So first, the road through suffering requires a spiritual mindset. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual in some generic New Agey sense or something. I'm talking about spiritual in a biblical sense. How Paul uses that term in his very letters that he's writing on these missionary journeys that we're looking at. So in Paul's letters, a spiritual person as opposed to a natural person is someone who has the Holy Spirit. It's someone who's trusted in Christ and been made holy through the sacrifice of Christ so that they can receive, so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, By trusting in his death and resurrection for our forgiveness of sins, we're made righteous and holy. And now as holy people, we can receive God's Holy Spirit. And so that's the first thing you got to have to be a spiritual person in Paul's sense is the Holy Spirit. But it's not just being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's being filled by the Holy Spirit and having uh, the Spirit help us assess all things in accordance with what is true, what is right, what is good, according to God. And that kind of a person exhibits wisdom and spiritual discernment. And we want to see more and more of this in our lives. But looking, uh, Paul uses, the, the term gets translated, appraising all things in 1 Corinthians 2. Appraising, testing the value of all things in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had a spiritual mindset. He was the quintessential spiritual person in that sense. And so did Paul. And sometimes the Spirit led them away from danger. Like, sometimes Jesus would stay out of Jerusalem because he didn't want to provoke uh, his suffering and death too soon. Right? And so we see him acting in a way that is spiritual in the sense that he's, he's understanding the times. He's understanding what God's doing, what the Father's doing in and through him. And Paul, it's the same way. I mean, sometimes we see Paul being smuggled out of a window in a basket to get out of Damascus so that he's not caught and killed by his persecutors. So sometimes the Spirit will lead us away from danger, uh, but sometimes the Spirit leads people like Paul and Peter and, and, of course, Jesus on a road, not just to suffering, but through suffering, which is exactly what we see in Paul's life in this context in our passage today. The Holy Spirit had, had given Paul spiritual discernment to understand his calling. Again, Paul wasn't wondering what his calling was. He knew exactly what his calling was. His calling was to do exactly what Jesus said he was going to do, is to take the, the, the name of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles in particular. He understood that, and he also understood that he was going to suffer for Christ's sake. And so he had this discernment, And he explains this to the Ephesian elders in last week's passage. If you were with us last week, he met with the Ephesian elders on the coast. And this is what he said to them. He said, and now behold, excuse me, bound by the Spirit. Catch that. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except... Here's what I do know, he says, that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, every city he's going through, saying that chains and afflictions await me, that is in Jerusalem. And then verse 24, he says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course 
and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. I love that. So he understood his calling. He had spiritual discernment. And in today's passage, Paul and his traveling companions, and there's a big group of guys going back to Jerusalem with him to bring that offering from the Gentile churches to the, to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so Paul and his companions are making this final leg of the journey back to Jerusalem. And I actually have a map of his third missionary journey. You can see it. And so he met uh, in uh, Miletus, right off the coast of Asia Minor, is where we were last week. So really, our passage today covers the whole trek down to Tyre and Ptolemais and Caesarea. Uh, And we're actually going to leave him in Jerusalem at the end of today's passage. So they're on this final leg of his third missionary journey. And uh, in verses 1 to 3, I'm not going to read it all. It's kind of a travel log. Uh, but their journey goes from uh, Miletus to Tyre. And then in verse 4, this is what I want to draw your attention to. The Christians in Tyre. Paul does not know these Christians. He has to look them up. And so he finds the church <clears throat> that had been established, probably through his own persecution, pushing people out of Jerusalem with the gospel to places like this. And, uh, and he finds the church. And, and after he gets to know them, they find out what's going on with him going to Jerusalem. And this is what they say. The Christians in Tyre were telling Paul, listen to this, through the Spirit, that is through the Holy Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. So these are people that have received the Spirit of God. They are indwelled by God's Spirit. And through the Spirit, they are pleading with him not to set foot in Jerusalem. And even though they had the Holy Spirit, they wrongly assumed, this is the best way to make sense of this in the context, It seems that even though the Spirit was revealing these things to them, they were wrongly assuming that the best thing for Paul would be to to keep away from danger, to to not go to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer if he goes. And so, uh, and a lot of us do that too. They're well-meaning Christians. They love Paul. They're they're compassionate towards him. And yet they draw the, the wrong conclusions about what he ought to do and what God's leading him to do. But Paul was committed to going, so what do they do? They relent because Paul is resolute, but they, they walk out to the beach with him. They kneel down on that, that, that little sandy shore right there before he boards the ship, and they pray with him. And folks, I don't know of anything better they could have done. In fact, that's the very best thing they could have done, is once they realize he's heading into danger and that that's where God's leading him, is just simply pray for him. And I bet that wasn't the last time they prayed for Paul. So in verses 7 through 11, Paul then gets to Caesarea, uh, and the, the, there's a lot going on there, and uh, there's a really cool passage about, um, if you remember Philip from the seven that were chosen to distribute food to the widows, so Philip, who becomes an evangelist, he settles there, he's got four prophetess daughters, uh, and it's a really cool picture of just how the foundation of the early church of the apostles and the prophets, how we see these, these gifted females among the prophets in the New Testament, uh, including uh, his daughters that were with him in Caesarea. So anyway, they're not the ones that share this prophecy with him, but there's another prophet from Judea named Agabus. We've already seen him in Acts as well. He's the one that predicted the famine. He shows up there while Paul and his traveling gang is there, and he shares again uh, of the dangers that awaited Paul in Jerusalem. So again, we're seeing this reiteration of it's going to be dangerous. There's going to be afflictions. And so as a result, in verse 12, as Agabus, who's a well-respected prophet in the early church, all of Paul's traveling companions and all the people there in the church in Caesarea that probably knew Paul, he had spent time there before, 
What do they do as a result of hearing this prophecy? Well, Luke tells us who's writing this, and he includes in the first person plural, we. So Luke and the other traveling companions and the rest of the church are all, it says, begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, I know you thought this was a good idea, but come on, man. Did you hear what Agabus just said? This is going to be dangerous. And so that was their reaction as well. Again, well-meaning Christians, but trying to deter him from going to Jerusalem. But Paul, again, was absolutely resolute. And why? Because he had a spiritual mindset. Because he was appraising these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He, he knew that the Lord was leading him to Jerusalem, come what may. And if you go back, we can't look at it right now, but if you go back to Luke's gospel, there's a point, there's a transition point in the gospels where it says Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And then you see this progression where Jesus is moving south to Jerusalem. And it's almost like this march to his crucifixion and death and resurrection. Uh, But he sets his face towards Jerusalem. That's what Paul's doing here. He sets his face towards Jerusalem because he knows, come what may, that's where he needs to be. And in fact, the constant warnings of what would happen, you got to ask yourself this, why is the Holy Spirit reminding him time and time again in every city, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. Guys, it's an encouragement. God knows he's going to suffer. Paul knows he's going to suffer. But by reminding him, like through, for instance, through a spirit-inspired prophet like Agabus, by reminding him, what is it telling Paul? It's telling Paul that God knows exactly what's going to happen, that God is still sovereign, he's still in control, he still sits on his throne, and he will even in the midst of Paul's suffering and imprisonment and and, uh, transition into Rome to house arrest. He's going to be with Paul. So this is an encouragement. This is not like, well, can't the Spirit make up his mind? Like, he's saying it's going to be dangerous, but he's saying you got to go there. Well, yes. But by reminding him that that God knows what he's going to uh, experience should be a great encouragement. I'm sure it was to him. So first of all, the road through suffering requires a spiritual mindset so that we can discern what to do when faced with suffering, whether to embrace it on the one hand, or whether to try and escape it on the other hand. And depending on the situation, this is why we need spiritual discernment, because it might be different in different situations. So second, the road through suffering requires a sacrificial mindset. Now remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders we read earlier in Acts chapter 20? He said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that I may finish my course, that's my race, that's a, like the a course for a foot race in Greco-Roman times. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of God's grace. Guys, he is not saying, he's not devaluing himself, but he's putting the proper focus on Jesus Christ and the will of his Lord in this life, on this earth. That's what's most important in our lives, guys. But by saying my life is not dear to myself, he's saying I'm not clutching with this death grip onto my life and the things of this world. And and God's going to have to pry my cold, dead fingers off of these things, right? He's saying I'm going to hold these things loosely, open-handedly, including my very life, so that I can finish my course and complete this work that God's given me to do by his grace and through his Holy Spirit. On the same missionary journey... Earlier in the third journey we looked at, Paul had written the words of the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to the sacrificial language. 
He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, which he had just spelled out for, you know, 11 chapters. Uh, he says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. That's another word for your whole selves. OK, to present yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is New Testament worship. This is us not bringing a dead animal and putting it on the, 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 the brazen altar. This is us taking ourselves, our very lives, and everything about us and putting that on the altar of God as a living sacrifice to be used for his purposes. That's a sacrificial mindset. And Paul had this sacrificial mindset. And again, so did Jesus. There's a lot of parallels between Paul and Acts and Jesus and Luke's gospel. Both of them understood that they were called to lives of suffering for the glory of God and for the good of others. Do you understand the purposefulness with which they suffered? They didn't suffer and go, woe is me, woe is me, why is this happening to me? They saw in the context of their suffering opportunities to glorify God in how they suffered well and to bless others through their suffering. That's why they did what they did. Jesus suffered so that we could be saved. Paul suffered so that others could hear about the salvation of Jesus and come to know him and be saved. They understood that this was God's will for them. And when Jesus' disciples, remember when they tried to steer him away? Remember he would say, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, handed over by the Jewish leaders to the Gentiles, to the Roman soldiers. And they're going to, uh, I'm going to suffer. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. But, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again on the third day. Remember he says this over and over to his disciples, especially as he's making his way to Jerusalem. And what do they do? Peter, Right. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 33, Peter's like, no, 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 Lord, because what are they expecting? They're expecting like a military leader to come in and conquer the Roman Empire, right? They're not expecting that actually somebody, a, a perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God has to die in their place as their substitute to pay for their sins so that they could be made right with God. They didn't get that. They thought, yeah, he's going to come in and whip up on the Romans. We're going to get these great seats. <clears throat> We're going to get these positions of honor next to him. Remember this? talked a lot to his disciples about this. What does he say to Peter when Peter rebukes him, pulls him aside and go, you can't be talking like this, Lord. People are going to lose confidence in you. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. In other words, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Satan had done what? The Holy Spirit leads him out into suffering in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's suffering hunger and thirst. He's being relentlessly attacked by Satan and tempted. And what did Satan tempt Jesus to do? It actually mirrors the, the temptation in the Garden of Eden. He tempted him to escape suffering. He tempted him to use his power, to, whether that was to fix the suffering of, of hunger and turn stones into bread because he was the son of God uh, in disobedience to the father who brought him out there to fast for those, those days or eventually takes him up on a mountain and says, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. You want to be the king of kings? I got a great way for you to become the king of kings. You bow down and worship me instead of the father. I'll give you all these kingdoms. And he had authority to do that, I believe, ever since the fall in the garden. And so he offers him what? A crossless path to being the king of the kingdoms. He offers him a way to escape the suffering, to go around it, to get out of it. And yet Jesus knew that that was his, 
that was what the Father was calling him to do, was that very thing, to suffer and to die for our sins. Because had he done that, there would be no substitutionary death for our sins. There would be no payment for the penalty that we're due. And so he was resolute, and he uh, rebuked Satan with words from the Old Testament. Um, He was unyielding in the face of temptation. Paul was also unyielding. When his friends tried to convince him to escape the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem, again, a parallel. Now, he doesn't call them Satan and rebuke them. That He needed to do that for Peter. Jesus did. But what does he do to his friends here in Caesarea? It says, then Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. That's like when you take rocks and beat your laundry back in the day to like wash it and clean it. It's like beating a rug. It's like you're pounding on my heart. You're pulling my heartstrings. Uh, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, like Agabus had talked to him about, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So the road through suffering requires a sacrificial mindset so that we won't cling to our lives and to the things of this world, but rather freely give up everything, including our lives, to follow Christ and to accomplish his purposes. It takes a spiritual mindset. It takes a sacrificial mindset. Third, the road through suffering requires a submissive mindset. And all these things are related. I'm just taking them in order as we see them in today's passage. A submissive, submission, a mindset of submission. Guys, in our culture, if you, uh, I mean, look, uh, mixed martial art, whatever, submission, is that a good thing? To submit? No, that's failure. That's defeat. That's weakness. And that's how our culture sees submission. That's weakness. It's defeat. But Christ modeled submission to God the Father with incredible strength of character, unbelievable strength of character. And so did Paul. That's where we get this term for meekness. He didn't, it's not that he didn't have the strength. In fact, it was the strength that allowed him to submit. It's all upside down in our culture. But in today's passage, we see Paul's friends also learning from Paul, and they submit to the will of the Lord as well. At first, they tried to convince Paul to escape the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem, but then they recognized that he was obediently following the Spirit. It's like they listened to Paul, and they saw Paul, and they realized, no, Paul's not just trying to you know, suffer for the sake of suffering. Paul's actually following the Lord. And it's bringing him through suffering. And so instead of us trying to convince him to escape it, why don't we, like the people did in Tyre, pray for him and specifically entrust their friend to God? And how did they do that? Luke writes about this in the final verses of today's passage. Again, I love it because Luke was with them. And so Luke is one of the ones that's saying these things. He says in verse 14 through 16, And since he, that is Paul, would not be persuaded, we became quiet, remarking, this is the last word on it from them, the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Mason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to stay. So there, we leave Paul and his traveling companions in Jerusalem. So in Luke's gospel, we hear Jesus saying something really similar to this. And this is what a Christian should say, a Christ follower. What does Jesus say in the garden? Again, he's being tempted. Again, it's a garden setting where he's being tempted by Satan. 
on the eve of his, the night of his arrest and betrayal, the eve of his crucifixion and death, and he brings his disciples with him to pray with them, and then he goes a stone's throw farther, and this is what he prays, and, and, and he uses the cup imagery. There's a lot of cups in the Bible, but this is, I believe, the cup of suffering that the Old Testament talks about, the prophets and the Psalms. It's the cup of, of God's judgment. It's the cup of suffering that, that uh, the nations or whoever, Israel or whoever, has to drink down to the dregs. And he's sitting here with this metaphorical cup in the garden, and he's saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Doesn't stop there. <laughs> Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. He did what none of us could ever do in, in being perfectly obedient to everything the Father willed. And that's how he uh, resolved to go to the cross, is I accept the Lord's will. I accept the Father's will. And so too must we uh, in our submissive mindset. The road through suffering requires a submissive mindset so that we ourselves, so that we see ourselves as servants of the Lord. <clears throat> Uh, have any, has anybody read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah? They've got like a cartoon out now, but it's, it's one of the most famous books of all time. It's like more published than any other book besides the Bible, I think. But it was written over 300 years ago, and, and in it, the, it's, a, it's an allegory for the Christian life. The whole book is. And the main character, Christian, huh, see what he did there? Uh, is, is going through all these different uh, experiences on the road. And uh, at one point, he's got these traveling companions. Their names are hypocrisy and legalism or formality, I forget. But he's with these two, two folks. And, and he gets to this hill, and the hill is called difficulty. And Bunyan does a great job describing it. But he comes to the base of this hill, and, and the path leads up it. And the path is called difficulty. And his two traveling companions see pathways around the hill that seem to meet up on the other end of it, and they seem to be easy. It's, it's a way to, to skip past, to escape the difficulty of climbing this mountain. And so they take off on either side, but those paths end up becoming, the one is named danger, and then the other is named destruction. And so they end up, never hear from them again, okay? So Christian, however, he begins to slowly ascend the hill of difficulty. I think I have a picture an artist's, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, okay. So just imagine in your mind a little pencil sketch of a guy laboriously going up a mountain, okay? In fact, Brandon could probably act it out for us, I don't know, on the cafeteria tables, but anyway, so he, he starts slowly ascending the hill of difficulty, and soon he finds this wayside resting place, a resting place by the way, and it, it says in the text that it was put there by the Lord of the hill, Who's the Lord of the hill of difficulty? It's Jesus. And halfway up the hill, he puts a wayside resting place. And it says in the text, for the refreshing of weary travelers, people that, that follow the narrow path up the hill, and he puts it there for their refreshing. And this is one of my favorite chapters in this book because it reminds us that following Christ will sometimes lead to difficulties and hardships. But listen, he will help us through those times if only we will trust him. Right around the corner, when we think we can't go another step in that direction of difficulty and suffering, all of a sudden he'll refresh us in some way. And that's just how he works. But we have to trust him. 
Our culture, however, treats suffering and difficulty like an escape room experience, right? My daughter just did two in the last two days, right? So she's getting good at this. But if you know about this trend of escape room experiences, you bring a bunch of people in a room and they all have to put their heads together, work together to escape. And you know, like that's how our culture treats suffering. It's like we're trapped in this room and it looks like we're going to have to suffer. So let's put our heads together, figure out how we can escape suffering at all costs. Now, listen, I'm not saying there's not times when the Lord will lead us to escape suffering. He will. There are going to be times in our lives where he will change our direction and will uh, and prevent us from, from facing what would otherwise be really difficult things. But that's not all the time. Sometimes, uh, oh, by the way, we saw that with Peter. You remember Peter went to prison? You remember he miraculously released him? Remember, um, uh, uh, well, Paul, the first time he was under house arrest in Rome, he escaped. Paul in Damascus, when he first got saved, he escaped from his persecutor's plot, right? So there's times where we see God leading people to escape from suffering, but sometimes Jesus leads us on a road to suffering, and folks, we have to trust him to lead us through it as well. And this will require a Christ-like mindset that is spiritual, sacrificial, and submissive. And we have to apply today's passage, and you have to do the hard work of applying this personally. I can't apply this for you, okay? I don't know what you're facing. I know a lot of what y'all are facing. Um, That's part of my privilege as a pastor, is I get to hear about a lot of the difficulty and the suffering and the trials and the tribulations. But I can't apply this for you. So think about this. As we apply this, we need to remember, first and foremost, that none of us can follow Christ through suffering without complete and constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit for wisdom and strength. Guys, if I, you know, do the benediction and send you out into the world thinking that it's up to you to suffer well, you are going to fail miserably, okay? It's not up to us. However, our part to play is to turn to God in complete and utter dependence and depend upon the Holy Spirit for the wisdom, the direction, the guidance, the strength, the empowerment to persevere. And he will provide it. He is the one who makes it possible for us to live with a Christ-like mindset. You want to go try to whip up, conjure up a sacrificial mindset or a submissive mindset? Good luck. (laughs) The culture's not going to help you, all right? We should be helping each other in that sense, but ultimately it's a work of the Spirit in our lives. He's the one who led and empowered Jesus during his earthly ministry. Isn't this blow your mind? That Jesus, in his incarnation, in his flesh, in his earthly ministry in particular, the last three and a half years of his life leading up to the crucifixion, he, did, he depended on the Holy Spirit. That's why he goes out into the wilderness, because the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. He was depending on the very same Holy Spirit that you and I have, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, for empowerment to do what he did. And we look at it and go, yeah, but that's, that's the Son of God made flesh. Well, yes, but that's the whole point of him emptying himself of his, of his glory and not uh, uh, doing it on his own, but rather modeling to us dependence upon the Spirit. That's why at his baptism, the Spirit came down upon him like a dove. And guys, that's the same Holy Spirit we have. And therefore, that Holy Spirit, the one and only, can help us persevere as well. So, uh, he's the one who will similarly guide us and give us that same strength to persevere. As we become more sensitive to the Spirit, we will be able to better discern which direction to go in life. Sometimes, as I've said time and time again today, he will lead us away from suffering. And that's okay, right? I don't want you guys to suffer. 
right? But I know that at other times, that's going to be part of God's will for our life, is to walk through a season of suffering. Sometimes he leads us straight to it, but through it. And so we must be prepared to embrace whichever road, even when well-meaning people try to discourage us from taking it. Guys, if I'm heading into suffering, the people that love me, especially if they're not in tune with what the Spirit's doing in my life, they're going to try and convince me to, to, to pull out, pull back, you know, pull up, pull up. You're going to run into the mountain, right? That's, we do that because we love each other. But sometimes, like we saw in the passage today, we just have to keep prayerfully seeking God's will in these matters. When keeping, think about these, these uh, circumstances, and I'll leave you all with this on application, but when keeping lifelong vows of marriage becomes difficult, now, I don't, none of you married people have probably ever experienced difficulty in your marriage, but let's just, like, hypothetically, hypothetically, you get married, you make these lifelong vows, and it gets hard. That's not a hypothetical. That happens to everyone who's ever been married for more than, like, five minutes, okay? It's hard, but, but sometimes, even well-meaning people out in the world, sometimes, sadly, even well-meaning people in the church are like, Gosh, that looks, that looks hard. You should pull up, pull up, get out, go. You know, go be happy. Go roll the dice, you know, whatever. Again. Because that's not helpful. And again, it's not that they hate you, it's, right? We all give bad advice sometimes. Unbiblical advice. But when stuff gets hard, sometimes we hear that. But we have to prove spiritual, sacrificial, and submissive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm not telling you you can do this in your own strength and effort. Please don't hear that. I can't either. I have to depend on him to keep those vows as well. How about when our job seems unbearable? Anybody had one of those jobs where you're like, ah, if I dig one more ditch for this guy, right? Well, we've all probably had those experiences before, regardless of what your job is. Sometimes it seems unbearable. But we can't just pull the escape hatch, right? We have to prayerfully consider, why does God have us here? Maybe, just maybe, he has purposes and plans for us in that very context of difficulty in our workplace. Maybe he's teaching us something. Maybe he's teaching someone else through us. Maybe he's using us as light and salt in that place. But we have to prayerfully consider whether that's where the Lord wants us in order to accomplish his plans. How about when a medical diagnosis doesn't change or show any improvement? Folks, that happens, and we are all going to physically die someday. That's just part of this fallenness of the world right now. But we have the hope of resurrection and glory in the kingdom of God that we sang about earlier. So sometimes the diagnosis is going to come back and it's going to keep coming back. And how are we going to have the strength to endure that? How are we going to be able to persevere? Folks, we can take courage through the Spirit, confident in the presence of the Lord. Remember? Remember him reminding him, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer? Part of that was so that he knew that God was still sovereign, so that he didn't hit that wall of suffering and go, God fell off his throne, God's gone on vacation, God doesn't love me. He wants to, to, to secure in our hearts and minds the knowledge that he's with us and he will continue to be with us all the way through it to the other end. <clears throat> and he will persevere us. In all these things, we will become more and more like Christ as we continue to develop a Christ-like mindset that is spiritually sensitive selflessly sacrificial and servant-heartedly submissive to the will of the Lord. So I'm going to conclude with Johnny Erickson Tata. Who knows who Johnny Erickson Tata is? Okay, phenomenal 
woman, phenomenal Christian woman. Johnny Erickson Tata, at 17, dove into a shallow water and broke her spine and uh, was quadriplegic, has suffered more than uh, most. I'll put it that way. <clears throat> she just came out with a book. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to get the audio book because she narrates it. But uh, it's called Songs of Suffering, 25 Hymns and Devotions for Weary Souls. You know, maybe this is that resting place on the hill of difficulty for some of us. <clears throat> She's known all around the world as someone who suffered much, but also who has learned a lot from her suffering, even as God has used her in powerful ways to minister to others and to comfort others who are in similarly difficult situations. And so uh, just the other day, I heard this audio clip from her new book, and she's the one reading it, which I think is so cool. And it's, uh, she's reading the words of a hymn called Be Still My Soul. And I want to leave you guys with the words from this hymn. She says this, she says, and this was written um, by someone back in the 1850s, Catherine von Schlegel, I think. But Johnny Erickson Tata reads, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Your best, your heavenly friend through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata knows what that author of this hymn so eloquently describes, and that is that the only way to endure the road through suffering in this life on this earth is to embrace the love of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, the promises of God for us, including our resurrection and glorification with Christ, with a mindset that is both spiritual and sacrificial and submissive all at the same time. And that's my prayer for you guys. And that's my prayer for our church, that we can do that together. Uh, next week, we're going to begin uh, the final section of Acts. Uh, the missionary journeys are over, unless you want to count the, the missionary journey to uh, Rome. Um, but Paul is going to, he's, he's in Jerusalem. We're going to see the fulfillment of those prophecies concerning his arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem. And then again, his long trip to Rome, where we'll leave him at the end of Acts 28.